So here we are a year and a half later, and we're wrapping up this journey through 1 Corinthians. I began this series a year and a half ago reading a joke. So those of you that were here on March 8, 2020, you will remember this joke. If you weren't here, uh, good. Those of you who were, don't give the punchline. It was voted the 44th funniest joke by GQ magazine. And the joke goes like this. Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump. I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Now, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, well, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. One more. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, well, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die heretic, and I pushed him in. Uh, Jokes uh, are funny, and sometimes these kind of stories make us laugh. And one of the reasons why they make us laugh is because there's a line of truth running right smack dab in the middle. For most of us, oh, I forgot to dismiss kids. I'm glad that they went on their own. My kids. See, I didn't put it in my notes, and if it's not in my notes, then it's it's gone. But uh, we we know that although that story is funny, we've experienced some of that truth. How divided we have become. Think about the last year and a half, because if you, if you think about it, on March 8, 2020, when I started that message, literally two weeks later, we were in lockdown, and we didn't have anybody in this building on Sunday morning except for a handful of us, full of us myself, the worship team. We scrambled to figure out live stream. We had some people step up, but... Literally two weeks after starting 1 Corinthians and starting to talk about division in the church, we began this year and a half journey where we experienced a pandemic. And there was divisions about masks and vaccine. Who has more faith? The one wearing the mask or the one not wearing mask? And the government has taken away our freedoms. And then... We had not too long of that, the riots from the George Floyd incident in Minneapolis. And then it became Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter and All Lives Matter and alt-right and alt-left and 
racism and white privilege and systemic racism or that's of the past, it's no longer. And to think, you know, haven't we had enough? Then we had an election. Biden versus Trump. And how can you be a Christian if you voted for Biden? Or how can you be a Christian if you voted for Trump? And I heard him both and... It isn't my thing today to get into what side you're on on any of those issues. I just think it's amazing how the Spirit of God works. Because for some reason, and it wasn't some bright shining light or something like that, it was like, you know, we should walk through the book of 1 Corinthians and Paul talks and wrestles with the division in the church and we start and what do we experience in our culture and in the church around the United States, division. And of course, not that division is anything new. Division has been around since the beginning of the church. It's just that we have been hit in a huge way by it in the last year and a half. In the midst of that, we began talking about uh, one of my favorite uh, pair of words, and that is Cognitive misers. If you remember, we talked about Dr. Christina Cleveland, who wrote a book, Disunity in Christ. And one of the reasons why there's so much disunity in the church today is that we don't take the time to sit down and actually have a dialogue with somebody who has a different viewpoint than us. And one of the reasons why we don't do that is social psychologists have coined this phrase cognitive miser a cognitive miser what that mean is that our brains get tired if we have to think too much and so because that happens we have a tendency to not want to do a ton of thinking and what happens is our brain does these neurological pathways from one thought to the next. And once we find that pathway, we just, our brains run that pathway. And it becomes a rut. It becomes a habit, good or bad. And so here we have our brains that really want to just reserve its energy And yet, we think we can multitask. Well, social psychologists really have done a lot of studies around that. And as remember, we brought up uh, back then that really multitasking is not possible. You may think you're a good multitasker, but really, you're just, according to social psychologists, not according to me, you're just fooling yourself. So how do we cope with ourselves being a cognitive miser? Well, we conserve our mental energy by selectively choosing what we'll pay attention to. Remember, we talked about kids. You know, you talk to a kid, you're trying to give them instruction, it's like they're not even listening to you. uh, Because they're choosing not to listen to you. But then you and your wife or your husband can be in another room and you want to tell a secret and all of a sudden they can hear. You could be whispering in another room and they hear you because they're choosing. That's what our brains do. We can block off what we don't want. That's the way we deal with being a cognitive miser. Another way is we develop mental shortcuts, which means we label people. 
We put them into categorize, uh, categories. So we categorize people by the color of their skin, by their political affiliation, by their age. Are they a boomer, a millennial, or a Gen Xer? We, we label people by religion and theology. Are they charismatic or not charismatic? So it's so much easier if I label somebody. If I label somebody, oh, they're a Pentecostal. Then whatever my view of Pentecostal is, I just slap that label. Now I don't need to get to know them at all. And whatever they say, I just go, yeah, they're the Pentecostal. But we do that with people of different colors of skin and different political viewpoints. Another way we deal with this is we avoid situations that de- demand a lot of thinking. So we de- avoid conflict. Um, we, we really don't want to discuss our beliefs, especially with somebody who doesn't agree with me because that takes a lot of work. We also cope by spending time with people who think like us. And this is where we get our herd mentality. Because if I just hang around people who think like me, Now I don't have to worry about disagreements or conflict or thinking too much. I don't have to because we we think alike. Problem is, this is how we get extremism. Because we have people who think alike and they keep journeying farther down the road on extremist views. And it's in this environment of us being cognitive misers and labeling people and really not wanting to take the time and energy to get to know somebody else's viewpoint that we come into this series in 1 Corinthians and Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians 1.10 I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another and what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, whether you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Who does Paul think he is? Really? I mean, how in the world are we going to get a bunch of people in the same room who are perfectly united in mind and thought if we're all a bunch of cognitive misers and we're all labeling people and we really don't want to take the time or energy to get to know somebody else. How do we do that? But it wasn't just Paul. Remember Jesus' prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed that those of us who believed would be united so that the world may believe that Jesus was sent by God the Father. Jesus has some of the same expectations. And the reason why he has those expectations is he knows that if we are united in mind and thought, the world's going to go, how is this possible? There has to be a God. Jesus has to be real. God actually, they had to send, 
That's the only way we can explain how this group of people who maybe have different thoughts can come together and be in harmony around tough issues that are dividing our world. Well, that was the beginning of 1 Corinthians. And we walked through and we looked at all the different issues that the church in Corinth was dealing with. And, and we took what they dealt with and we tried to apply it to us. What, what, are the, what can we learn about this? And what is Paul trying to teach those people back then with the issue they're dealing with? And how do we apply it to us today so that we can be in harmony in mind and thought. And let me tell you, Paul has said some tough stuff over the last year and a half. It's been hard. It's been hard for me. And I know it's been hard for some of you because sometimes I get your emails. And that's really okay. I, I... You just need to know that this wrestling stuff, it happens in the elder meeting. Because we have nine guys around that table, and we all don't think the same. But we have decided, as tiring as it gets, especially when Pastor Brad goes on rants, that we're in this together. Over the last couple of weeks, Paul has been wrapping up his letter, and we were looking at chapter 15, and what was Paul addressing at the end of his letter after going through all of this stuff, and Paul reminds us of what is of first importance, and what is of first importance is the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, he says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Whatever you do, Whenever you take your time, your energy, and your resources, and you put it towards the work of the Lord, even though it may not seem like you're having any success, whatever you do, trust this, your labor is not in vain. So Paul is challenging the church to always Always give your work to the Lord. We're going to wrap up today in doing a flyover of chapter 16 because chapter 16 is, Paul is really, you know, just here's some loose ends that I'm going to address real quickly and then I'm going to sign off on this letter because as we know, the letter got really, really long. And so Paul talks about the last things that are important to him and one of the last things that he deals with is this, giving. I'm not going to read the text today, but in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16, Paul talks about um, gathering money and collecting money for the church in Jerusalem. And the underlying theme that Paul talks about is he's trying to teach the church about generosity. 
In other words, as, as it was with Abraham, you have been, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, so too are you and me followers of Jesus. You have been blessed, now be a blessing. Go, be a blessing. And part of that for Paul was, hey, there are some people in need in Jerusalem, so collect money. And he talks about um, gathering your money weekly and setting aside so that when Paul comes, it's not this ginormous offering, you're prepared. Now, he just touches on it lightly, but if you look in 2 Corinthians and you want to find out more what Paul has to say about generosity and giving, go to 2 Corinthians, because I'm sure what happened is they got the first letter and read about what Paul said about giving. It was short and like, hey, set money aside for when I come, and they're probably... So how much and all that kind of stuff? And well, go to Second Corinthians. Paul deals with it. Again, in the kingdom of God, generosity is a big part of it because we are blessed to be a blessing. So whatever level of your abundance may be, know this. Give. Be generous. In fact, when you read in 2 Corinthians, what you'll find out is Paul's target church set the example. Here's the church you follow. is the church in Macedonia. And you know what he says about the church in Macedonia? They gave generously out of their poverty. So generosity is really has nothing to do with the dollar amount you give. Generosity in the kingdom of God is the sacrifice that you're giving is. Another thing that Paul talks about in chapter 16 is prayer. Paul takes the next 13 verses, 5 through 18, and he talks about all kinds of people in different situations around in other churches needing prayer, and he just kind of, hey, Here's these people. Can you pray for this? Can you pray for this? Can you pray for this? And it's a good reminder for us to be praying for the church around the world, the church down the street. What, what if we prayed for our other local churches that God would bless them and use them? What if we prayed for our fellow Christians around the world, especially those who are being persecuted? And here's an interesting thing I'm going to point out in verse 8 and 9. Paul says this, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Isn't that something? I think it's just crazy. A great door of opportunity is happening. In other words, there's ministry. People are getting saved. Lives are being transformed. There's this great opportunity in Ephesus. And oh, by the way, there are many who oppose me. That, my friends, is the work of the evil one. That, my friends, is the way it normally works. Often, they tell those of people who are doing the work of the Lord, whether for employment or volunteer-wise or whatever it is, know this. If you're going to do the work of the Lord, know this. You will be opposed in one way or another. 
whether it's people coming, to get you, coming against you or whatever it may be, know this. When God chooses to open the door for effective work, the enemy is going to up his work to But if you remember the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, what does Paul tell the church in Ephesus? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and the powers, against Satan and his demonic force. Isn't it interesting that Paul has telling the church in Corinth Hey, there's a great opportunity happening, but there are many who oppose me. But what Paul is not saying is those people who oppose me are evil because Paul knows that it is Satan that is actually one doing the opposing. And you talk about trying to develop unity with one another. The first step in developing unity with one another is realizing this. You may have a conflict with a person. And there may be some stuff you need to work out. But that person is not your enemy. That person is not the evil one. Your enemy is Satan. And he is the father of the lies. He's he's the master deceiver. And he can deceive any one of us. And we may at some times oppose the work that God is doing. Paul also offers a challenge as we get farther along in 1 Corinthians. And there's these two verses right in the middle of chapter 16. And it's a challenge that Paul gives, and the challenge is this. Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. To be on your guard means to be alert, to take heed, to watch so you aren't deceived, to pay attention to what's going on around you, and to pay attention to what's going on in you. Because as I said already, Satan, the father of lies, he can deceive any one of us, so be on your guard. And he can deceive your favorite online preacher. (laughs) So how do we be on guard? We were talking at staff, I can't remember if it was this last Tuesday or before, but one of the things that's really missing in the church in the West today is self-examination. We don't really invite the Spirit in to examine our thoughts and our ways. It's a spiritual discipline that we fail to do sometimes. And, um, but here we have an example in Psalms 139 where the psalmist writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the path of righteousness. See, it's so much easier for me to label somebody and see the error in you. Here's where you are wrong. 
Here's what they're. That's what social media is all about today. You don't see on social media, I have wrong opinion. We don't see that, do we? It's you're wrong. And the discipline, self-discipline, the, the something we need to get into is self-examination. I've told this before, but when Terry and I did church plant things and our world fell apart and our marriage was hurt and I was praying and I, I know it's hard to believe, but I had a list of things that Terry was doing wrong because she is an angel. But, but what God kept telling me, it took a little while to get it in my brain, God kept telling me, stop focusing on her and look at you. And it was only until I began to address the things that God wanted to do in me that I began to see that really the list I had, Terry didn't really change. It doesn't mean, it, it's me that changed. And that happens. That's how we stand guard. By self-examination. By, okay, am I being deceived here? Paul also says, challenges them to stand firm in the faith. To stand firm is to hold your position. Don't be moved. And we get moved off of the gospel all the time. Stand firm in your faith. We, we get off focus on other things. It's what we talked about last week and the week before. What is of first importance? It's the gospel. Anything else is second. And what that means is that doesn't mean those things aren't important. They're, they're important. But if they get in the way of you being able to present the gospel and love people well and talk to them about Jesus, then they have become a hindrance to the gospel, and you are no longer standing firm on the gospel. You're standing firm on this issue. Again, hear me. That doesn't mean those issues aren't important. Okay? I just want to say that. What is of most and first important is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So stand firm. Paul also says to be courageous. Be brave. And when I think of courageous, I always think of Joshua where God tells him to be strong and courageous. He took over Moses' job and he led the Israelites into the promised land. He was challenged to be strong and courageous. How do you be strong and courageous? You become strong and courageous not by having all the information before you move. It's by taking what you do know and moving forward. And what I mean by that is we already know God's will. God's will is to love Him and to love others. We don't have to pray about anything. It's God's will. Be courageous and do it. We already know God's will. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. We don't need to pray for God's will. We know it. Go do it. We know, according to James, that religion that is pure takes care of the widow, the orphan, the poor. It's God's will. Be courageous and do it. Take the information you have, what you know, and then just do it. That's how you be courageous. Be strong. Again, this is, goes back to 
Ephesians 6, where Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. So how do you be strong? Becoming totally dependent on God because it's only by the power of God working in us that we can be strong. So put on the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the uh, shoes that are fitted with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit. Put it on. Be strong. And again, it's not your own strength. It's walking in the strength of the Lord. And the last challenge that Paul gives is what is said multiple times in the Bible, do everything in love. This is the theme of the gospel. It's what we saw in 1 Corinthians 14.1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the things of the Spirit, especially that you prophesy. Pursue it. It's the command of God, as we already talked about, love God and love others. It's 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. It's Colossians 3.14. After he talks about all of these things you should put on, like gentleness and kindness and self-control, he says, above all, above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 1 Corinthians 1.10. Be in harmony in mind and thought, love binds all together in perfect harmony. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Do, do, do you get it? So how do we do Everything in love for me, it's remembering this, that in spite of all my failures, in spite of all the times that I feel like, why in the world, God, have you got me doing this? I remember that God loves me. God takes the imperfect and he uses them for his glory. Why? Do we do everything in love because love wins, because God is love, and because God loved us while we were still sinners? Do, do I need to go on? I mean, it's the picture of Jesus going into the tax collector's house when everybody else, all the religious leaders are, oh, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Jesus, out of love, went to Zacchaeus' house. It's a picture of Jesus protecting the woman caught in adultery. Again, when the religious leaders wanted to throw stones, Jesus was on his knees next to the woman who caught adultery. It's the story of the good Samaritan, the Samaritan caring for the Jewish person. Talk about racism and every other ism. The picture of love is reaching across those divides. It's Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. I become all things to all people, but that by all means I might win some. That's how we do love. 
So today, as we end this journey through 1 Corinthians, remember this. What is of first importance is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else is second. This last week I had two people share with me stories about sharing the gospel. One was Lorraine, our wonderful OCC person that was up here, little Lorraine. She said she was in a convenience store this last week, gas station. She came up to the young man behind the counter and she said, so are you tired of all the bad news that is on TV and all that kind of stuff? And he goes, yeah, yeah. She goes, I've got good news for you. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again because God loves you. It's all that happened. That's it. A seed was planted. We don't know. We don't know when that seed's going to come to harvest, but that doesn't, we don't need to be concerned about that. Just plant a seed. Another story was Joe Lee, and I actually asked him to, we recorded him on video, so we're going to take a couple minutes and just watch Joe Lee as he shares his story. Good morning. My name is Joe Lee, and last Sunday, Pastor Brad gave a good message from Corinthians, and he ended it this way, to impact our neighbors, and that made me think of what happened to us back uh, when our children were younger. We lived in White Bear Township, and uh, we thought we should pray for all the people in the neighborhood. So as we would walk around or bike around, we would pray. We prayed for each house. It was almost like planting a seed in each house. And we had no idea what would happen based on that. But the thing that happened is my wife met one of the neighbors and she asked my wife if she could come over and have my wife pray for her. And out of that came this prayer meeting and this lady that had had my wife pray was a uh, an evangelist she talked to her all her friends her relatives all the people on her street and out of that a prayer meeting got going and uh, lots of people got saved in that prayer meeting there was a lot of joy there and it was amazing what new christians how they went and told their friends. A couple of incidents, uh, one was one of the couples that lived just across the street from this lady, they got saved and they brought some other friends of theirs. And this man had his shoulder had been uh, so messed up that he hadn't worked for a whole year she arranged for us to go and visit that couple and we had prayer for him and as she laid this lady laid her hand on his shoulder the power of god came and he was instantly healed 
But you know, he should have said praise the Lord, but he wasn't saved yet. He said, holy cow. <laughs> his shoulder like that, he completely healed. And uh, that was one of the things. One of the other things is my current wife, Jan. Uh, she was a product of that prayer meeting as well. The people that lived across the street from her were part of this prayer group and told her about salvation. And she came and one night her husband Greg came and I had asked, does anybody else want to have prayer during a prayer session? And Greg came and he sat in the prayer chair and God saved him and gave him a dose of his spirit and they never looked back. They walked with God all the rest of that time. One of the other things was that the people uh, were asking, can you teach our children? And so my wife at that time, Helen, started a Bible club in the neighborhood and we get roughly 40 kids on an average time every week and we, it was such a great blessing to our family and to the neighborhood. We were just regular people, and God worked with us to do this thing, and God will work with you. I would just encourage you to see what you can do in your own neighborhood and see if God won't work with you and bring about marvelous things. Thank you. Joe told me uh, this morning he forgot one big part, and that was the guy who his shoulder was healed and became a Christian. Well, his wife and six kids, they all became believers. That night. And a mother-in-law. Well, there is a miracle right there, right? It's impacting people with the love of Jesus on the journey of life is possible for all of us to do. It begins with prayer. It could be in your neighborhood. It could be in your workplace. I mean, even if you are now working at home, you could pray through the list of your fellow employees. Maybe if sometime you're on a Zoom meeting, you just pray for each person on the screen. Students, it's praying for other students that are walking up and down the hallways of your school. One of the things that I would challenge my kids when I was a youth pastor is in your school or in, in your group of friends that you kind of hang out with, Who's the one who's not a believer that's least likely to become a believer? Pray for that one. And we had a couple in our youth group that came to know Jesus. It took months and months of praying, but it lit up our youth group. One of the reasons why we do these community connect groups after the service and why we get together in groups 
around people in different areas is because our de- we're spread out. Our desire is hopefully in these community connect groups, you will begin to talk about what would it be like for us to walk our neighborhood. And I get some of you are out in the country and your neighborhood, it's, people are, you know, a mile down the road, whatever. What if, what if you got together and you picked out an area in your town and you, once a month, you got together and say, hey, let's go walk this area and just pray. I mentioned many times that um, one of my prayers is that eventually at Crossroads, 40% of the people attending would be new believers. That's possible when we walk in the strength of the Lord. That's possible when we begin to take initiative and begin praying for people, praying for neighborhoods and work people and all that kind of stuff. It is possible. We need to be intentional in praying and looking for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And the other thing that's possible is for us, as Paul desires, for us to be united in mind and thought. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I, um, there's so much to be thankful for, so many ways that we are blessed. And so first of all, thank you. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross and that he rose again and he sits at your right hand so that we can be in right relationship with you. Thank you that you loved us first while we were still sinners. Father, I pray that Crossroads would become a place where people are intentionally praying for and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in their neighborhood, in their workplace, in their families. I'm reminded of the praise this morning in the prayer room of Bill sharing that his sister in the last hour gave her life to Jesus after years of prayer and sharing with his sister. Thank you that Bill can praise you today. Give us a hunger and passion for lost people. Make it just stir in our hearts and our minds. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.